but all of it is built, uh, all of it is given so that we would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We pray for the help of your spirit, uh, not just to hear and understand, but to put it into practice, uh, to trust you, uh, to be obedient and godly, and to live out your purposes and build your kingdom. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do you ever wonder whether God is really building his church? Oh, I mean, you guys are in a church plant. I'm sure you wonder it quite often. Uh, do you look around you on a Sunday morning and compare the couple of dozen people here with the hundreds of people you saw as you drove here? In the coffee shops, in the Bunnings car park, exercising, doing the gardening, washing their car. Uh, do you ever feel how insignificant and powerless our church is, this church, or even the universal church, compared to the companies and governments and media outlets and educational institutions? We seem so weak in terms of resources and influence and numbers. And yet looks can be deceiving. Things are not always what they seem. God is at work in ways that we can't see or explain. And there is growth that may not look significant, but that is eternal and real. God is getting things done by his spirit. So we need to trust him and not try to build things on our own. Now that's the lesson for us from today's chapters in Zechariah. Looks can be deceiving. Things are not always what they seem. God is at work in ways we can't see or explain. We need to trust him and not try to build things on our own. Uh, remember the situation in Israel. They've been released from Babylon after 70 years. Uh, they've been allowed back by Cyrus of Persia to rebuild the temple. But it's 20 years on and there hasn't been much progress. Uh, the foundations seem to have been laid, but that's about it. The crops are failing. Persia's still in charge, they're still demanding their tribute. Half the people haven't even bothered to leave Babylon and come back to Israel. But those that have have made a new life, but that life's tough. And the people can't help thinking, is God at work or not? Chapter 3 last week was a vision about the religious leader, Joshua. His grandfather had been high priest when the temple was destroyed, 70 years earlier. Chapter 3 was about how God would, would cleanse Joshua uh, of sin and equip him for the job of high priest. Uh, well, this week, chapter 4, it's about the political leader, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is a descendant of King David, and it was his grandfather, Jehoiachin, who was the last king of Israel when Jerusalem was destroyed. And so now he is the leader of these returning Jews. He's the governor. He's not a king. He's a governor appointed by Cyrus. So we're up to vision number five. We're up to vision number five. Oh, there got it. We're up to vision number five. Uh, verse two, if you can follow along, it'd be great if you can follow along. Uh, verse two of chapter five, Zechariah sees a gold lampstand with seven lamps. Uh, think uh, menorah. Uh, it was like the menorah that made the tabernacle, that, that was made for the tabernacle back in Exodus. 
Uh, spoiler alert, in this vision, this, uh, this lampstand, it represents the temple. Uh, but unlike that lamp, that, uh, that candle holder, uh, that, uh, that lamp back in the tabernacle that had to be refilled regularly by a priest, this one has, has like an automatic feeder system, like, like a hydroponic system, uh, so that it doesn't have to be refilled. Uh, think, like, you know, a bit like you have maybe for your cat when you go away for the weekend, so, you know, it just automatically there's food there. Uh, and there's a, a good picture there on the right that uh, sort of explains the imagery. Uh, there's this menorah, but then there's a bowl on top, and there are seven channels or tubes from the bowl into each of the lamps, this automatic refilling system. But then, verse 3, the bowl itself is filled from two olive trees. And Zechariah asked an obvious question, which is great for us. <laughs> what are these, my Lord? Verse 4. The angel doesn't answer straight away, but he does give this helpful introduction in verse 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Now, whatever it is that Zerubbabel has to do, he's not going to achieve it in his own strength, by his own planning, by his own intelligence, his own resources. He is to trust God who will achieve it by his spirit. That's the principle. And so when God is on your side and when God is working through you, nothing can stand in your way. Look at verse 7. What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. So what's this mighty mountain? Well, it could be a literal mountain. It could be the mound of rubble that's been left behind when Jerusalem was destroyed. Uh, it could represent uh, opposition, uh, like Babylon. Uh, there's a verse in Jeremiah uh, that talks about Babylon being the destroying mountain that God is against. Uh, so perhaps it might even be Persia, it might be the other nations that are around, it might be saying, whatever the mountain is, it could be a metaphorical mountain. Whatever mountain stands in your way, if you trust God's spirit, it, it won't be an issue, it won't be a barrier. But you won't achieve it uh, by your own might and power, you have to trust God's Spirit. Uh, now, almost certainly, uh, Jesus is thinking of this image in Matthew 17. Uh, his disciples have been unable to cast out a demon from a boy who suffering seizures. Uh, Jesus rebukes the demon, Jesus heals the boy. Uh, the disciples say, why couldn't we do it? Why was it all right for you? And look at what Jesus says. Because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible to you. Not by your might or by your power, but by the Spirit of God, mountains can be moved. So I think Jesus is talking about a metaphorical mountain and, and maybe that's the same here in Zechariah. So what is this task? What is this metaphorical mountain? What's it got to do with the vision of the, 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 the lampstand and the oil trees and the bowl? Well, finally, seven, uh, verse 7b, we get some answers. Uh, then he, Zerubbabel, will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Zechariah, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of his temple, his hands will also complete it. 
So way back when they first arrived in Jerusalem, within the first year, they, they'd started work on the temple. Zerubbabel had laid that first stone, you know, a bit like the, the Lord Mayor turns up and, you know, as it cuts the ribbon and turns the sod of dirt and then everyone else built it. So that's sort of what Zerubbabel's done at the start. But then the building work had stalled. Well, now Zechariah has a prophecy for Zerubbabel that he will be the one who will lay the capstone, the top stone, that, that final stone that will lock everything together. The one who began the job, he will actually see it through to the end. Now, that's actually the same message of the, the first part of the vision, the, the weird part with the, the image. Remember I said the lampstand represents the temple. The two olive trees that feed the bowl, like they represent the rubble, the political leader, Joshua, the religious leader. We find that out there in verse 12. Zerubbabel asks again what's going on. And in verse 14, the angel replies, These are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Priests and kings were anointed with oil uh, when they, they began their job. The anointing was a sign that God's spirit would equip them for the job. So Joshua the priest, Zerubbabel the king, they'll be the ones who will provide the fuel for the lampstand. They'll be the human agents to see that the temple gets built. Uh, the second, of, uh, second half of verse 10 gives us another hint that helps us unravel the imagery and the meaning. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. Now which seven? We're, we're a bit disconnected from seven, but, but I think it's the seven lamps further up at the top of the chapter. Fire or uh, light represents God. Think uh, Mount Sinai with, with fire or the pillar of fire that leads the people through the wilderness. It, it represents God. Uh, and God's seven eyes represents his, his rule over all the earth. And so these seven lamps represent God in his temple. Joshua and Zerubbabel are not just building any old house, they're building God's house, a place for God to come and dwell and to rule from. This is an extraordinary thing they're building. Now remember they've started the work, but things had stalled, and so nearly 20 years later, verse 10 gives us a hint about perhaps one reason why the work had stalled. It seems like they'd lost enthusiasm. Verse 10 says, who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. The day of small things. I think that is a nod back to the time when they, they first laid the foundation out, uh, back in the second year of, uh, of the people's return. Uh, Ezra 3 describes the events around that time. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who'd seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. You see, this time around, the builders had, had the quantity surveyors, they, they'd worked out what their resources were and so they've made a plan for, well, how big, big can we make it? Uh, and they've marked out the footprint for this new building. 
but it was naturally much smaller and less impressive than Solomon's temple. Think about Solomon. He, he had the, the wealth of his kingdom that he could throw at this, this building project. And don't forget King David had been stockpiling resources for years beforehand as well. But this temple, this second temple, it, it had been built from charity. It was a charity case. It, it came from the donations of the people. That, uh, King Cyrus threw in a few gifts as well to help, help things along. And so for those who'd experienced the old temple, it, it just seemed, this one seemed so small and insignificant. But God is saying, I'm coming to dwell in this temple. Don't despise the day of small things. It, it may be small, but that doesn't mean it's insignificant. Now that's the way we sometimes feel about church, isn't it? About the growth of the gospel, the cause of Christianity in the world, and we see the Australian census figures and the numbers of Presbyterians and Anglicans and Christians in general, those who believe in God, all of those measures are declining. But God's message is, who despises the day of small things? Looks can be deceiving. God's kingdom may not look impressive, it may not look like it's growing. In fact, kingdom growth may hardly look like growth at all. But God's spirit blows where he wills. And God grows things according to his timeline, in his way, according to his plan. Which means we will never grow God's kingdom by our power or our might. We won't grow God's kingdom by trusting in human giftedness or organisation or the world's techniques for growth or trusting big budgets or flashy advertising or new buildings. God's kingdom will only grow as we trust God's spirit. Who despises the day of small things? I think when we begin to look with the eyes of faith, we often see God's kingdom growing in small things. In a growing godliness from ordinary people in the face of temptation. Or a growing maturity in dealing with complex relationships. Or a growing contentment with work that doesn't satisfy. Or a marriage or physical limitations. Or a growing dependence on prayer in the face of long-term disappointment. Or a growing perseverance and joy in the face of chronic pain. Or a growing courage to share an ordinary faith in the midst of strong opposition at work or with family. Or in our life together, we see God's work as we Notice a growing unity and love for one another, despite different backgrounds and preferences. A greater patience and generosity with one another. A stronger desire to meet together and a greater openness and commitment to one another when we do. Now all of this growth is not by might, it's not by power, but by God's Spirit. Which means the most important thing we can do if we want to see growth is to pray, doesn't it? 
Yes, we need to do other things as well. We need to organise and prepare and preach and teach and love and give. After all, the temple was not built only by God's Spirit. It was built by people, actual people, working hard in dependence on God. We need to pray. Without God's Spirit, all our work is worthless. Our work achieves nothing. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labour in vain. And so that brings us to the end of uh, vision number 5. Chapter 3, saw Joshua cleansed and equipped for his job. Chapter 4, saw Zerubbabel encouraged and strengthened for his job. These are the two olive trees who, who will fuel the temple. Uh, everything is in place, at least at a human level, for the, for the temple to be built, for God to come and dwell with his people in his temple. And so we come to chapters 5 and 6. We're going to cover those in much less detail. You'll be relieved to know. Uh, chapters 5 and 6 describe what flows from what chapter 4 is described. You see, once God comes to dwell in his temple among his people, he gets to work and changes things. Look at what happens. That's chapters 5 and 6. So uh, chapter 5, uh, it's vision number 6. Uh, verse 2, Zechariah sees a flying scroll. It's 9 metres long and 4 and a half, half metres wide. This is huge. Now, now think paper scroll, not cinnamon scroll. I, I just can't get the image out of my head of a 9 metre cinnamon scroll. But, but don't think that. <laughs> uh, and, and this scroll is flying over the whole land. Now, that's not something you see every day. Uh, think one of those giant advertising banners uh, that's dragged behind a light aircraft. Uh, that's what this scroll is. It, it represents God's law as it impacts the whole nation. On one side, it says that thieves will be banished. On the other side, it says that those who bear false witness will be banished. Now these are just two of the commandments, but they, they represent the whole law. The whole law over the whole land. When the temple is built, when God returns to his people, when God's law becomes a priority again, then it will begin to influence his people. It's going to change things. Because God's word is the sword of God's spirit. God's word is how his spirit influences and guides and rebukes and shapes his people. Now God's word should be doing that in us too. Being shaped by God's word, it's one of the five outcomes of our church. Certainly over at Asheville Way, we're thinking about being shaped by God's word as one of the five uh, things that makes up a healthy church, being a healthy follower of Jesus. How are you being shaped by God's Word? As you hear it preached each week. The question time and the comments is a great way to be thinking through practical ways for how God's Word, word shapes you. As you think about it in Bible study groups, think about it together during the week. As you read God's Word on your own. If you're not being shaped by God's Word, maybe you're not asking yourself that question. How does God want me to change from this thing I've just read? What sin is this correcting in me? 
What obedience is this passage encouraging in me? Well, that's vision six, being shaped by God's word. Uh, Then from verse five, we see vision number seven. Uh, There's a basket containing a woman called wickedness, verses seven and eight. She represents the sin of the people. Uh, This basket is carried by two women with wings, verse 9, to Babylon, where a house or a temple is built for them. That's verse 11. Weird? (laughs) It's basically, though, describing the same process as vision 6, that that God's word is going to remove wickedness from the land. Uh, But it actually makes more sense when we recognise that it's borrowing and, and adapting or flipping imagery that we find in Ezekiel. Verse uh, chapters 8 to 10. Uh, Ezekiel is one of those other passages in the Bible where we get the same sort of weird imagery. Uh, But in Ezekiel chapter 8, it it describes idolatry that's happening in Solomon's temple. Idols are being set up and worshipped in the temple. Uh, And it's this is before the temple was destroyed. So we're, we're looking back in history. In fact, it's part of the reason why it was destroyed. Uh, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 8, we see a foreign idol as well as the glory of God together in the same place. It's shocking. Uh, chapter 9, we read about God's punishment against all the people involved in idolatry. And then uh, how God's glory, his visible presence, it begins to move away from the temple, away from this wickedness. Uh, and it moves from the ark, the ark of the covenant, to the door of the temple. And then in chapter 10, verse 18, it, it, it moves to join up with God's throne, which is actually waiting outside the temple. And, and under the throne, there are four cherubim, uh, four awesome heavenly creatures with wings. Uh, this is a vision repeated from chapter 1, and then God these multi-directional wheels underneath them so they can move in any direction. So just picture a a heavenly taxi that's waiting for its fare outside the temple. It it might look something like this. Uh, And verse 19, this this heavenly taxi stops at the east gate of the temple. Uh, And then in chapter 11, uh, you can see the reference there. This whole thing moves away from the city and stops on the mountain to the east of the city. Now, that, that vision in Ezekiel, it's all about how God's presence leaves the people, uh, leaves Jerusalem because of sin. Now, all of that should sound sort of familiar when we, we put that alongside the vision of the, the woman in the basket, the woman who represents wickedness. It's actually the opposite. Because exile is, is now over, sin has, has been paid for. Instead of God leaving the temple because of wickedness, it's actually wickedness that's going to leave. And wickedness is going to go to its own temple in Babylon. And instead of heavenly cherubim who are carrying it, it's earthly women who are carrying wickedness. So if you like, Zechariah's vision there on the right is an, it's an anti-ark that's being carried by anti-cherubim to an anti-temple in an anti-Jerusalem. 
it's all sort of upside down, back to front, but, but giving the positive message in a way that Ezekiel was the negative message. Wickedness will be removed to Babylon. That's the point. Now, Babylon is where God is going to deal with that wickedness, and, and that's vision number eight, moving into chapter six. Uh, we read about four war chariots who, who leave heaven, and they represent, verse five, God's avenging angels who will then go, who will go throughout the earth and deliver justice. Uh, and then at the end of that section, verse eight, the action zooms in on that one particular chariot, the one that heads north to, to where Babylon is, and we read in verse eight. Of chapter 6. Look, those going toward the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. Now, back in chapter 1, we had four horsemen who went throughout the world and they found that the world was at rest. And that was the, the, the peace of one oppressive nation ruling all the rest. Here we've got four chariots. And the rest that we read about is the rest of God's spirit, which I think is the rest when God delivers justice and his righteousness uh, has an effect. Justice is delivered. And so when we combine vision 8 with vision 7, vision 7, uh, wickedness is removed. Vision 8, wickedness is destroyed. Uh, the picture, I think, is that God deals with the people's sin that the way a bomb disposal unit might deal with a dangerous package. Uh, it's sealed into a safe container, then it's carefully transported away to a safe distance, and then it's detonated. Uh, the sin is removed, and then God's justice is delivered against it in Babylon. So these last three visions, six, seven, and eight, they are what uh, will happen as a result of vision five. God is coming to dwell with his people, and he will deal with sin and destroy it. And so I think at chapter 6, verse 9, we come to the exhausting night of, of, of visions for, for poor old Zechariah. Uh, we're probably pretty tired, I think, trying to work out eight visions. Well, poor old Zechariah had all eight in one night, so feel, feel for him. Uh, but chapter 6, verse 9, it's not the end of the prophecies. There's a, a much more conventional formula in verse, uh, verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. Maybe even thought, oh, something a bit easier than one of these visions I don't really understand. Now, now this prophecy will reveal, I think, how God can do all those things he's done in visions 6, 7 and 8, or 5, 6, 7 and 8. How God will be able to come and dwell with his people, how he will remove sin, and how he will destroy it. So the engine that drives all of that is... Verse 12, someone called the branch. Uh, we met him in chapter 3. Uh, but in some sort of strange way, this branch will be both priest and king. Uh, verse 10, Zechariah is told to collect silver and gold from some returned exiles. And then verse 11, he's to make a crown or, or two crowns. It, it's sort of a bit open to translation. The Hebrew for crown is plural, so in one sense it means crowns, uh, but plural can also just mean impressive or, or big or ornate. So it's either one ornate crown or, or else it's two crowns. I think it's probably two crowns. Uh, he's to put one on the head of Joshua and the second one gets put, stored in the, in the temple. 
But when he puts the one on the head of Joshua, he, he's got a message for Joshua. Look at verse 12. He's to say to Joshua, Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne. And there will be harmony between the two. Uh, branch is a title from Isaiah 4 and 11 about God's promised Messiah. I think the imagery is probably to do with David's family tree and a branch will sort of grow out of that tree. Uh, so in some senses, this is talking about Zerubbabel. He's the governor. He would work in harmony with Joshua and, and the literal physical temple would be built. And each of them would sort of rule their respective areas. One would rule the civil and one would rule the religious. But of course, the ultimate fulfilment of this is Jesus. Now, Jesus, who is both priest and king, who wears one crown, who wears the crown that the priest wears and wears the crown that the king wears. Uh, not just the partnership of two people, but both roles fulfilled in one. As a priest, the one who sacrifices himself to pay for sin, the one who represents men before God. But as the king, the one who rules sin and death and judgment, as king, the one who is building his house where God dwells, his church. Ephesians 2 borrows this language of, of temple building uh, to talk about how God is building his church through his King Jesus. Uh, you are members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's what God is doing through his king, his son Jesus, our priest, our king. Well, let's just pause for a moment. Let's think about Zechariah as he comes to the end of these eight visions and this, this, this next prophecy, this, uh, this other prophecy. How would he be feeling? Well, I think the overwhelming feeling for Zechariah would have been joy and gratitude and freedom. God was coming. God has dealt with sin. But also I think Zechariah would feel the weight of, of a real conviction and a challenge that there was work to be done. Uh, there's a temple to be built. There's obedience to follow through with. Uh, look at how chapter 6 finishes. And these are Zechariah's words to Joshua. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me, Zechariah, to you, Joshua. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. God's overwhelming grace to us. It's not an excuse for us to sit back and do nothing. God's overwhelming grace for us is fuel to godliness and purity and to build God's house. It's fuel to work with God in dependence on His Spirit. 
Yeah, that's what Zechariah felt. But but that is a double word for us as well, isn't it? We were feeling even greater joy on the one hand and a greater freedom and gratitude because God has come and God has dealt with sin once and for all on a single day in his son Jesus, our priest and our king. But secondly, we should feel an even greater conviction, I think, and challenge that there is work to do. There is a temple to be built as we build his church. Not a, not a building. Who cares about a building? We are building something better, something bigger, more impressive. But we won't do it by might or by power, but we will do it by his spirit. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, there are some big concepts to think about here, but some wonderful encouragements that you remove sin from us through the work of Jesus, and then you destroy it. Jesus is king over sin and death and judgment. Wonderful encouragements that Small things are not necessarily discouraging, but you are at work by your spirit. Give us the courage to trust this. Give us the courage to obey you, to work on building your temple. And help us always to do it, not by might, nor by power, but by your spirit. Amen.